Wake Up with Patty Catter. I love the show. I never miss an episode. It's the best. I turn it on and turn it up. You're listening to and watching Wake Up with Patty Catter. I am your host, Patty Catter. Today, I have Frank King on the show. Frank, thank you for being on the show, first of all. It's part of a plea bargain. I really had no choice. <laughs> That's right. Um, so Frank is a comedian. He has been a scriptwriter on The Tonight Show. And Frank, you talk about suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. How on earth do we have a comedian talking about suicide? Like those are heavy topics. Um, suicide prevention has a ton of topics that we could talk about that are very heavy. So, of course, I assume and I've heard comedians often are the ones who do talk about suicide prevention because they've experienced some depression in different ways. Now, could you tell us your story? Yes. uh, People often ask because I speak professionally on suicide prevention and they ask, how do you choose suicide prevention as a topic? Well, in all honesty, the topic chose me. It runs in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old and I screamed for days. I will spare you the details because it's horror movie horrible. But if you'd like to know the story, my first TEDx talk called A Matter of Laugh, L-A-U-G-H, Matter of Laugh or Death, I tell the story in my first TEDx. Um, And I myself have come close enough to ending my life by suicide April 2010 after filing Chapter 7 bankruptcy that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Um, spoiler alert, Patty, I did not pull the trigger. Uh, a friend of mine came up after a keynote one time. He never heard me say that sentence. I didn't pull the trigger. He goes, and he's trying to be funny. He goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? Hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? Um, I believe a comedian's a good choice, and here's why. If you think about the world's first comedians were the court jesters, and their job was to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. I believe where there's humor, there's hope, where there's laughter, there's life, that nobody dies laughing. And as I mentioned, it runs in my family. More nuts in my family, Patty, than in a squirrel turd. <laughs> so it just seemed, I did comedy starting the day after Christmas, 1985. My girlfriend, then my wife, now 34 years, went on the road. I said to her, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian. Want to come along? And I thought she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. So we put all our stuff in storage. We couldn't fit into my tiny little Dodge Colt. We went on the road together. We got married shortly thereafter. And we were on the road doing comedy clubs for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. Uh, Worked with Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, Jeff Foxworthy, Ron White, Adam Sandler, Kevin James, Ellen Rosie. Opened up for the Beach Boys, Neil Sedaka, uh, Mary Wilson. And one weekend in Michigan at an amphitheater at the Seats 5000 opened two shows for Randy Travis. And on New Year's Eve one year at the Hotel Del Coronado opened two shows for Lou Rawls. You'll never find another love like mine. Which, by the way, is why I do comedy and don't sing. Uh, (laughs) So I did that for about seven, well, seven years and change. Did some radio in Raleigh, North Carolina, not far from where you lived for a while. And then when I got fired from radio, as you would, there are two kinds of people in radio. People have been fired. People are going to be fired. The comedy club thing was winding down. So my comedy was clean. So I jumped into corporate comedy. Pays a whole lot better. Did that for about 10 years. And then the last recession, 
the booking dropped off 80% overnight. That's when we filed bankruptcy. And when I came out of that, the meeting planners said to me, Frank, we love you. We just can't pay you that kind of money to be funny. We need you to teach our audience something. So I'm thinking, what am I going to teach them? And then it hit me. Given my family's mental health history and my mental health history, if I, if I got some suicide prevention training, I could do speaking on suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue. What I didn't know at the time was nobody talks about depression, thoughts of suicide, unless you bring it up, Patty, mm -hmm. and then almost everybody has a story. So that's what I get paid to do. My clients often say to me when I get there, look, we just brought you in here to start the conversation on suicide because once I get on stage and I reveal that I have mental health issues and I'm vulnerable, then it gives people in the audience permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences without recrimination. I have two mental illnesses. One's called major depressive disorder, depression, and the other is more rare called chronic suicidal ideation, which means that for me and people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And when I say small, I tell the audience, look, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself, which usually gets a laugh from the audience because it sounds absurd. However, here's the upside of that, Patty. Every time I've spoken since 2014, there's been at least one person in the audience who has that condition. They do not know it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak and all alone. And I had a young woman come up after a college show. She said, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, but God, I tell you, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She goes, you know your story about the car? Get it fixed, buy a new and kill yourself? I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know that had a name. I, I thought I was some kind of freak and completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not alone. And I wept. Hello. There's an ROI for you. So that's how I went from stand-up comedian or funny speaker to speaker who's funny. Mm -hmm. And Occasionally, somebody will say to me, does being a comedian keep you from getting bookings to speak on suicide prevention? I go, no, you got it backwards. They want my lived experience. They want the learning objectives. They want me to teach them something. And the fact that I can do it with some well-placed organic humor makes all the difference. I, I actually get selected more often than not because I can lighten it up a little bit along the way. So that's, that's kind of my comedy speaking history. Mm -hmm. You know, though, um, there are a lot of comedians who've struggled with depression. Do you know why that is? I mean, by chance, is it, I mean, you know, you take Robin Williams, of course, is the, the newer generation of comedian that that yep. happened with. Um, why is that? Do you think? Well, I did my third Ted talk on, it's called mental with benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness, because I kept bumping into people who had mental illness, comedians and actors and writers and whatever who also had some kind of extraordinary ability. So I believe that uh, Robin Williams, Richard Jenny, um, a number of comedians have died by suicide, more than the average human walking around the US. I believe it's because that, myself included, I think that my depression and thoughts of suicide are simply the flip side of my comic ability, imagination, creativity. And so that serves you well, unless there's an imbalance at some point. Robin, he had had heart valve surgery, which can be depressing. He had a Parkinson's illness, uh, similar to Parkinson's, that was affecting his, him mus his muscularity and also his memory. And so, you know, you're an actor, uh, you depend on your memory. And so I think that combination, I, and I believe he was living with bipolar disorder, although he never admitted that. He talked about his drug addiction treatment recovery at length, joked about it, never mentioned the fact that I believe he had bipolar disorder. So you put all that together. But again, an amazing 
creative mind. And and did some research for the TED Talk. And there's a laundry list of actors, politicians, athletes that, you know, people are notable, famous, rich, who have a mental illness and also some extraordinary ability. I think it's, it's you know, it, it's like the flip side of one coin. I don't think I'm broken. I think I was made that, made this way. I can teach you to write stand-up. I can teach you to perform it. I cannot teach you to think or process information the way my brain does. It just it just does because of the way it's wired. Mm-hmm. So are you teaching people how to do stand-up? I'm just kind of curious about that myself. Um, there's a class not that far from me that does teach people how to do stand-up. So I took a couple classes there and it was fun for me. Yes, so. I have taught in the past. I've taught comics in the past. When I lived in Raleigh and worked at the radio station, there's a club there, it was a club there called Charlie Goodnights. And they had, uh, I asked the owner, could I teach comedy class? Six weeks, and at the end of the six weeks, you have a graduation show and you, everybody invites friends and family. The public comes in. And, and so, yes, I have taught comedy in the past and it's usually people who are already kind of funny. They just need help organizing their comedy. I also taught a class called stand up for mental health. It's a guy named David Grenier out of British Columbia, Vancouver, BC. And you have to have a mental health diagnosis, mental illness diagnosis to get into class. And you have to have a mental illness diagnosis to teach a class. And they were my best students ever. The stuff that came out of their mouths was ready for prime time. A young woman, um, Tasha. I said, Tasha, what you got for me today? She goes, my boyfriend says he wants to break up with me. I said, well, why does he want to break up with you? Well, he says he wants to see other people. I said, what did you say? She said, I'm bipolar. Give me a minute. (laughs) Oh, my God. It gave me chills. And that's the way it came out of her mouth without any editing, any polishing. I mean, you can put that right on television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how my students were who were mentally ill i don't know if it's because they spend so much time in their own heads you know reflecting or shining a dark light into the awfulest corners of their psyche but they were amazing at that so yeah it's um again i can teach you to write i can teach you to do it i just can't teach you to process because people will say to me somebody will heckle me and i'll fire back and they'll ask me after the show how'd you think that up i didn't think it up when you heard it, I heard it for the first time. I, it wasn't like I thought, I'm going to say this. It just came out of my mouth. Now, where does it come from? I don't know. How do I do that? I have no idea. It's just a gift. I so what do you tell people? Because you're so unique, first of all. You're teaching people how to laugh. You are making people laugh. And then, boom, you hit them with the suicide topic. Um I assume there's probably a lot of people in your audience who, like you said, they're, they're suicidal. They've been suicidal. Mm -hmm. Do you have any topics though, that you can talk about that help you recognize suicidal thoughts in somebody so that you might be able to ask them how they're doing? Well, I knew that was the piece of the puzzle I was missing when I was just doing stand-up. I didn't have anything to teach anybody. And I realized I can teach the signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide, what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say and how to find resources. For example, people ask me, how do you spot depression? Well, here's three signs. This is not an exhaustive list, but three signs. One is they have trouble getting up in the morning, but they kind of rally in the afternoon. Two, they eat too much or can't eat. They tend to sleep too much or can't sleep. And here's one you can actually notice on Zoom. They let their personal hygiene go. You know, they zoom in, you think, wow, here's a little dirty clothes are kind of not quite so clean. It may be because they're struggling to get out of bed in the morning to run a little wash and get in the shower. Now, then the question comes up, what do you say? First of all, I would say, say nothing. Just listen actively. But if you're going to say something, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Here's what you do say. Look, I'm here for you and I mean it. 
I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time. I will help you get that treatment. And here's the tough part, Patty. You have to ask them the following question. Are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you can't ask it just like that, find somebody who can. Now, let's say you suspect, Patty, your gut tells you this person is having thoughts of suicide. How would you know? Well, they um, talk about death and dying. You catch them Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing. They're gathering the means to die by suicide, whether it's medications and stockpiling or buying a firearm. They are getting their personal affairs in order, especially giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the person they want them to go to when they're gone. And if they give away a pet, that's kind of the top of the pyramid in terms of prized possession. Now, here's a counterintuitive one that's very dangerous. They've been depressed forever, and all of a sudden, they're happy for no apparent reason. And of course, you're happy because they're finally happy. Here's the problem. They may be happy because they've chosen time, place, method, and they know the pain is coming to an end. That's what a lot of people don't understand about suicide. It's not so often about wanting to kill yourself. I didn't want to kill myself. I simply wanted to end the pain. And that's why they're happy. They know the pain is finite. So you could, if that happens, that's a very dangerous sign. Now, let's say they are forthcoming. They do tell you they're having thoughts of suicide. Now, what do you say? Well, you say, do you have a plan? If they have a plan, tell me what your plan is. And if it's detailed, time, place, method, you need to get them on the phone with a suicide prevention lifeline. Or now for younger people, they have a suicide prevention text line. You text the word help or connect to 741-741. And there'll be somebody about your age on the other end to text back. Okay, now what if they've got a plan, but it's not really well formed? You know, it's not it's kind of nebulous. There's nothing in the textbooks about this. A psychiatrist and I came up with this idea. I would say, well, tell me, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then I say, okay, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever it is. Something's keeping them here. You know, my friends, my family, my animals, my whatever. Make them give voice to that. And I, I mean, I, I have several reasons I don't kill myself. And I, I could, you know, if you said, Frank, well, why are you still here? Well, my mom and dad wanted children desperately. They tried to adopt. This is back in the 40s and early 50s. And no, inf no infants available. So they decided, well, we're just going to have to do it the old-fashioned way. So my mom got pregnant, carried to term nine months, and it died shortly after birth. A year later, they tried again. My mom got pregnant, carried it nine months, and shortly after birth, it passed away. Somehow, somewhere, she found the courage to try a third time. I was born the fourth time my sister was born. So here's how I feel about that. She was so brave and worked so hard to bring me here that I feel like I have to work as hard and be as brave to stay until my appointed time. You've really floored me on a couple of things. So I, <laughs> I don't know if you could see me, but I had a, I literally was holding back tears on this one part because um, my dad gave me his dogs before he decided to end his life. And I didn't think about it. I didn't think about it at all. And he was getting all of his things in order. He had, you know, put some things in my name. He, you know, he had all these things that I was oblivious to. So I wish those were things that I wish I had known. Um, and then my mom also had several miscarriages in between my older sister and I. Um, so I, I'm appreciating everything that you're saying personally, but I also know it's going to resonate with a lot of my listeners. Um, because 
there are some red flags that I know about now, but I didn't know, you know, when my dad was going through it or, um, some of the veterans that I've helped, um, were going through it. So I think it's a really important topic to discuss. Um, so what do you say, um, about people who, I mean, they're just kind of blowing off their friends who, you know, well, maybe they're suicidal, but I don't really know. I mean, I guess I don't even know what you say to them. Um, take it serious. Yes. Uh, what you're looking for is patterns, like with your dad. Had you known that getting his affairs in order, giving away prized possessions like a pet, I mean, had you known those signs and symptoms, I imagine you would have immediately recognized the pattern. Mm-hmm. So now you can't unlearn that, nor can your listeners unlearn those signs and symptoms. So that's what that's, the good news, Patty, is this. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal generally are ambivalent. They can't make up their mind. And nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to it, an attempt. So if you know the signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide, the vast majority of people do not want to die. They want somebody to notice something and intervene. So you can, you can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as we're doing here. And that is starting the conversation if you know what to look and listen for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. Um, what would you say? Um, to people who, gosh, maybe they're on the fence, like maybe I want to die. Maybe I don't want to die <laughs> besides. Okay. Obviously you want to take, you want to tell them to tell you what it is that they're living for. Right. Right. And then, you know, that. yeah, I know too, that, um, I always try to get, especially, um, I have a lot of experience working with veterans Uh, military veterans who have a lot of post-traumatic stress and they're just dealing with a lot of inner demons. Um, So I try to get them involved in helping other people. So it kind of takes their mind off of just focusing on themselves. And it sounds kind of like that's what you're, you're indicating here that they should do. Talk about why they're here. Um, That's huge, right? What you're looking for. I just took, I just took a training called assist applied suicide intervention skills training. And what you're looking for and listening for in that training is it's called a turning point where they where they let you know one way or another in the conversation that there is, in fact, something keeping them here. You can even ask, look, you're still here. Is there some reason you are still here? Can you see yourself going on beyond, you know, into the future? And then you grab that and then you say to them, well, would it be okay if you and I created a a safe a plan? to keep you safe just for today, just for today. Because it's difficult when you're in that, you know, that swirl of depression, thoughts, suicide, to think much beyond today. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Also, a couple of things. One, if they're on medication, but it's not working very well, there's now a DNA cheek swab test, like Ancestry. And they take your DNA and they try to match it to the antidepressant, let's say, or two that works best with your metabolism, which... If if my antidepressant hadn't worked right off the bat, I would have gone straight to the DNA cheek swab. And there's half a dozen companies online that if you type in DNA cheek swab um, depression test, you'll find half a dozen companies. And it's only a couple hundred bucks. Most insurance is covered. Medicare covers it, I believe. Um, second thing is I recommend that they have, and I've recommended this for neurotypical people during the pandemic who may be situationally depressed because of the pandemic. I believe you have to have a, self-care plan. Mm -hmm. You need to take active steps every day. And mine is very simple. Five things, diet. I'm on the keto diet and I, I am, I'm 
intermittent fast. I ate one meal a day. Exercise. I try to exercise at least five days a week. Um, meditation. I meditate twice a day. It's a guided meditation, usually after a meal. Um, medication. So it's diet, exercise, meditation, meditation. Oh, and a good night's sleep. And they asked an astronaut who was on the space station for a year by himself. Only people he saw was when they came up to bring groceries. How in the world do you survive that kind of social isolation? He said, it's a routine. I go to bed roughly the same time, get up roughly the same time, eat same time, exercise same time, binge watch Netflix same time. So I think you need a self-care plan and you need a routine. And finally, there's something called gamification. My deal is if I'm having trouble getting out of bed in the morning, which occasionally happens, I make a list, an actual physical to-do list of six things. And the game is, once I scratch off number six, I don't care if it's three in the afternoon, broad daylight, I can go back to bed, which is what I want to do, pull the covers over my head, and binge watch The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, because that's yes. what I want to do. <laughs> so there's a win. And the gym, same way. My deal with the gym is 25 minutes away. All I got to do is get in my gear, go to the gym, and if I get there and do one rep of one exercise, that I can turn around and go home. I've never done that, but that's the option. That's the win I can take if I just got there and thought, I just cannot. I can't even. Although I must tell you, the last gig I did before the pandemic was in Chicago. Lovely Hilton Hotel, great gym downstairs, elliptical runner, my favorite. I was exhausted because I'd just flown in. I go down the elliptical, I get on, I think, I just want to go to bed. So I thought, okay. So I did one minute on the elliptical. Done. Went to bed. I win. Next morning, got up, did an hour. So that's how gamification plays a part. You've got to figure out a way to give yourself a win. Like, because the thing is, Patty, the thing that the gym plan and the get out of bed plan have in common is it gets you up and moving forward. And there is, there is, it's not a cure, but it is palliative to get up and be in forward motion. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that's what I recommend. So it's a combination of make sure your medication is working, make sure you have a self-care plan or routine and practice gamification. Wow, man, Frank, you've really offered some really great insight. I appreciate you so much for doing this show because um, I do know a lot of my listeners, they'll tell me, you know, they only tune in because they want encouragement or they're just really stuck in a hard spot. So, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. and one last piece of the puzzle, Patty, in Canada, the Canadian military, one of my TEDx coaching clients is a doctor, the head doctor for the military in Canada. And they're experimenting with something called psilocybin, which is the psychoactive ingredient in magic mushrooms. Oh, yeah. What they discovered is microdosing that with good heavy therapy is excellent on three things, depression, substance abuse disorder, and wait for it, PTSD. And in the state of Oregon, come January 1st, 2023, my psychiatrist will be able to prescribe me microdoses of psilocybin with therapy. And they believe, Patty, so far the results showing that it's not a patch like an antidepressant. It's actually a rewiring and a fix. So there is hope on the horizon for those of us depression, PTSD, and uh, substance abuse disorder. Oh, oh, that's for sure. And there, I just saw an article this week. There's a, there's, there's a procedure where they, they, um, electricity goes into your brain, not, not the um, shock therapy, but it's a, some kind of gear you put on your head and it sends electricity small amounts into your brain. Well, they've, they've taken it to another level where they actually, I think they have an MRI and they can see where, what part of the brain, the electricity, and they can guide the electricity to these parts of the brain. 
And this actual medical version in the, you know, in, in patient is 10 times better apparently than just the retail one you can buy and, and, you know, and use yourself to relieve depression. So that's another slice of hope. Um, Yes. I can't think of the, it's usually spelled out in initials, but I can't remember what the initials are, but if you do a little Google search on that, you know, electricity, brain, um, depression, I'm sure you'll get all kinds of Google listings um, for the retail version. And then, then this week they released the research on the actual inpatient version. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really funny you brought that up because um, there are a lot of scientific advances. And I've talked to several military veterans who've tried the quote unquote magic mushrooms. Um, Ketamine treatment is a really big thing right now in Colorado. Um, It's doctor guided. And I've heard some really great results with that. However, the mushrooms are more natural. Um, Yeah, that's right. It's not a horse tranquilizer. Exactly. Um, Exactly. But, you know, the the nasal spray, the ketamine ketamine nasal spray is apparently very effective on drug-resistant depression. Mm-hmm. So yes. again, with uh, under supervision, I don't want you to right. go to the corner, but you know, <laughs> no special K on the street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. I actually am going to be talking about that on some shows. Um, the show that comes out next week, we're talking about ketamine therapy too. So, um, very interesting advances. Oh gosh. I really appreciate you, Frank. Do you have anything that you just kind of want to leave our listeners with? Yes. Uh, if they go to my website, the mental health comedian, or since you spent time in Fedville, North Carolina, Patty, there would be the <laughs> mental health comedian. Mm-hmm. Com. I have written with two co-authors, a four book series on men's mental health. And if you go to the mental health comedian.com, I also narrate the books. And so book number one, there's a downloadable free MP3 of the first book, Unabridged, with me narrating it on men's mental health. And it's 12 stories, 12 guys. Each one has a different issue. Each one, what, what guys told us was we want real men, real stories, and how they're really coping. So that's the 12 stories. It's guys where things are going good, then things go bad, and here's how I'm coping. Real coping skills. And it's free on my website. It's like four hours and 15 minutes. Nine Man. Hours. That's amazing. I'm going to definitely be pushing that out because um, majority of my audience is male and majority of the audience also has some either depression or they just really need some encouragement. So this is perfect. Thank you. Well, and you know what? We sell more books to women than we do to men mm-hmm. yeah, because they've got a man in their life and it's difficult to figure out how you can help them. And so it's a truly a manual. It's got the stories, but it's got exercises and resources and so you can actually use that to help the man in your life, dad, brother, cousin, friend, whatever. That's really big because I feel like most of the men in my life have been the kind of guy who doesn't want to talk about their feelings and, you know, it's this <laughs> macho thing going on. <laughs> they call it toxic masculinity nowadays. But when I grew up in North Carolina, it had a much more colorful, t- colorful title, which was big boys don't cry. Yeah. Exactly. And I still hear that to this day. I still hear the men in my life like, oh, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, that's that's why eight out of 10 people who die by suicide in the U.S. these days are men. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. why construction is the number one at-risk occupation because it's male heavy. Mm-hmm. And they're tough guys who who don't. And, and by the way, Patty, it's not just mental things. Men wait too long to you know go to the doctor to lump in their testicle or they got chest pains. They think it must be the burrito from Taco Bell. I had two friends die in the last year, one of prostate cancer, one of uh, colon cancer. Both of those are 
are eminently treatable if you get a PSA test regularly and you get a colonoscopy every five, 10 years. There's no reason for a man or anybody to die of either one of those if you get the tests. But men, you know. Not going to happen to me. Not going to happen to me. That's an exit, not an entry. (laughs) Yes. I said to one guy, hey, listen, better your rear end than your end. Mm-hmm. And he got a colonoscopy and they found polyps and they took them out. And, you know, he'll go back every five years. And if there are more polyps, they'll take them out again. So, I mean, it's eminently treatable if you just, you know, take care of yourself. Absolutely. Well, Frank, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. I'm really happy that you spent time with me. I know your time is so precious and I am so thankful for it. So well, I my goal you. is to save a life a day, Patty. So maybe, and you know, there may be somebody in your audience who has chronic suicidal ideation who just found out on your show. It has a name. I'm not alone. I mean, that's life-saving right there. Absolutely. Gosh, thank you, Frank. Um, could, could you share your website one more time? TheMentalHealthComedian.com. My phone number's on there also, Patty. And I tell people in my keynote, I put my phone number up on the screen in PowerPoint. I go, look, if you're suicidal, call the lifeline. If you just have a really bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell number. And people do call or text. Gosh, you are amazing. I'm not going to judge. You don't have to explain anything. I hear the same music. I'm just going to co-sign whatever BS you happen to be waiting. You are amazing. Thank you, Frank. Thank you for that. And um, those of you listening, make sure you go over to Frank's website. If you need a public speaker, definitely reach out to Frank. Um, And again, I appreciate you. And everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Patty Catter with Wake Up With Patty Catter. Thank you for listening to Wake Up with Patty Catter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Follow Patty at Patty Catter on Facebook and Instagram. Get social. You can now watch Wake Up with Patty Catter on Amazon TV and Roku. It's the only podcast I listen to. Be sure to check out Patty's apparel line, The Patriotic Mermaid at thepatrioticmermaid.com and on social media at The Patriotic Mermaid. I love it.